Hello and welcome to Internal, it's the fortnightly CSIRO podcast where we talk about breaking science discoveries from around the world, Australia and inside the organisation. I'm Jesse Hawley from the social media team and I'm joined by Sophie Schmidt. Hello. And our producer, Adrian. Hi guys, how are we? Very well. Let's learn. Let's learn. Today we'll be chatting about chance microbe encounters in your gut, storing files on DNA and the genetics behind mirror movement disorder. Later, we'll also be talking to Michelle Troutwine about Arthropods of Our Homes, a project cataloguing the arthropods that share our homes. First up, let's talk about some of the science news that's come out in the last fortnight. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Research from MIT and published in the science journal PLOS Biology looked at microflora in the gut and determined a new method for how that particular arrangement of microbes, microbiota, comes about. So microflora, probably heard the term... Let me guess, it's really, really small flowers. <laughs> yeah. It's like a kind of butter. Miniature gardener inside. It is a collection of microorganisms. It include uh, bacteria, fungi, protists. Inside the human body, there's lots of statistics floating around. There are mm-hmm. 10 to 1 human cells, etc. It's probably closer to 1 to 1. We have 40 trillion microbes on and in our bodies. Hang on, you've danced to me again. Start off the bat, you're blowing my mind, 40. my little mind. Mm-hmm. I can't but, even comprehend what a trillion is. So yeah, what one, is a trillion? It's 1 to 1. So one of these cells... To one human cell. Yes. Yeah, so we're, so then why aren't we half whatever that is? Oh, we are if you want to be, you know, Pedantic consider right. yourself like that. You're an island. You're half of nobody, Adrian. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there are a thousand different species of bacteria, a thousand different species. So we're quite a biodiverse. We're like a, a jungle. And that equates to <laughs> 2.2 kilos of life that's not human. That's the equivalent of a chihuahua. Does that go up and down in your weight then, or is it... Yeah, every time you poop. So every time you poop, I think you excrete one trillion cells. So I can't remember. It's about one-third the weight of a fecal submarine is... um, (laughs) Is that our podcast? (laughs) It's bacteria. (laughs) Uh, So they're totally normal. They're healthy. They aid in breaking down food and giving us healthy byproducts. And um, we do require them for a healthy, healthy lifestyle. We ingest these bacteria mm-hmm. uh, via probiotics, as opposed to prebiotics, which includes yogurt, kimchi, any of these fermented foods. We get them initially from our mother's milk, and we share the microflora with our with our mum. Mm-hmm. You pass it down the line, so it's in a way it's kind of like genetics in that you acquire them and they mutate and they grow with you, and you pass them down to your offspring. At least mothers do. Uh, what microflora do if they're in the wrong assemblage, the wrong agglomeration of creatures, you can get stomach disorders like. Um, Colitis, IBS, IBS, uh, Crohn's disease. Uh, Microflora influence your metabolism, so they can influence, they've been associated with weight gain, weight loss. Microbes are also potentially associated with Parkinson's and other neurodegenerative degenerative disorders. So you've got lots of neurons in your belly and throughout uh, your gut. I've been Mm -hmm. hearing a lot about this connection between gut and Alzheimer's. Is it the same thing, different? Yeah, yeah. So there there are associations. More and more studies are coming out between the relationship of uh, neurons inside your gut. Another quirky fat, uh, fact about uh, pets is that there are the same number of brain cells in your digestive system as there are in a cat's brain. So your gut wow. does do some thinking, but it's not hooked up to your consciousness. It's just... Oh, your cat. Oh, <laughs> your cat. Like a human centipede situation. It's got Wi-Fi linked <laughs> up with a cat. Don't go out on a Friday night. So I feel like a plate of milk. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go and have a plate of milk. I bloody love some mice. <laughs> um, so... 
there's community inside you. It's basically a party. So there are some microbes that are already there, like the hosts. Mm-hmm. And then you invite some along when you eat kimchi or uh, sauerkraut. Yet you get gate crashes, like when you make poor food choices about chicken on the chopping board, like salmonella, yeah, right. E. coli. They come in and they completely mess with the equilibrium that's mm-hmm. been established. Now, if someone's got... Sorry, just to go back to the eating of things like kimchi and stuff like that. If you're someone who eats a lot of kimchi or eats a lot of yogurt, something that's nice and fermented like that, and they're delicious foods, let's just say that straight off the bat. They are fantastic. Mm, of course. Okay, thank you. Now, if, you've, if you eat a lot of those, that then mean that you've got an imbalance of, of the, the things inside? The... No, the, the ones that kind of should be there... The, the general community, mm-hmm. they've got like a fortress, a foothold. Gated yep. community. It's a gated community, <laughs> yeah. And new ones come knocking on the door, and if you've got a low immune system or you've just had antibiotics, the ones that come in, the gate crashes, uh, yeah. can establish themselves and proliferate and actually take over, and that's when you get ill. That's when you get crook, right. So, so there's like a threshold or a buffer zone, and, and kimchi helps upkeep um, and, and oh, okay. complement so, that. So the kimchi and the yoga and stuff like that, they've got the good guys in them? Yes, but good guys can be bad guys in the wrong scenario. Wow. Just put a gun to the head. Yeah. <laughs> They'll do all sorts of crazy stuff. That's not true. This uh, MIT study <laughs> used our friends from the last episode, the roundworm C. elegans, to investigate how exactly we pick up these microbes from the environment. So, as I mentioned, when you're a baby uh, sucking on the nip, we pick up skin microbes that are around the nipple, as well as the milk actually furnishes bacteria in the gut that like milk. So we picked them up that way. But these researchers found that Randomness has quite a big influence on how we pick up gut microbes. So they uh, they got these worms, the C. elegans, roundworms, mm-hmm. and they got them completely genetically identical. They put them in identical environments, fed them the same meals, like when parents dress up their twins in the same clothes. <laughs> they put them all together, and then they, uh, they grew bacteria, E. coli, same species but two different strains. One glowed green and one glowed red. It's bacteria, like Christmas, yeah, Christmas mi- microbes. Then they put them in the food... And then the the worms ate them, and they found out that there was like a completely arbitrary split as to what worms were growing red, their insides with Mm -hmm. bacteria, and what ones were growing green. So it turned out that it was like this colonizer effect. Whichever ones they happened to eat first, they would set up camp, completely dominate the inside of the worm, and just take over. So if you got the red uh, E. coli... Guys first, yeah. And then the greens came in. They got nothing, so they would just get kicked out of this party that's pumping. And um, so it turns (laughs) out... I wonder what single cellular music would be like. Yeah. Awesome, I bet. One bit. Minimalistic. One bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, turns out that not only is it sort of hereditary or the environment, but randomness and these sort of arbitrary effects. It's like sliding doors. You never know what bacterial community you're going to get in your gut and where it could take your life because it does influence um, things associated with your, your brain and all sorts of other effects. So, Well, I have um, Crohn's and my doctor thinks that it started from the plague. Oh, really? So, what, you've been around, around for 300 years? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, pretty good for 300. I was drowned in a well and I oh, came okay. back, yeah. Um, so, that's interesting. How does your Crohn's manifest? Well, my doctor thought that uh, it started from Yersinia, micro, mo, microbe in my gut that manifested as Crohn's. I don't know if it's related. Hmm. Bacteria, Segway yeah, they, my re- body. they wreak havoc. Mm. Segway into your body. <laughs> okay. Uh, but they also found uh, in this study that... Um, Leaving the worms with their meals for just one week led to 30,000 individual bacteria in the digestive system of C. elegans. And um, the C. elegans is actually one of the simplest organisms to have a microbiota inside it. So that's why they use them to study. And they're see-through, so you can just see them glowing red or glowing green. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. See how they light up together? And how big are these worms? 
microscopic. Now, they're... see, this is where now we're going to ask some of the stupid aging questions. How big are the worms? They're microscopic. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> they can still. <laughs> yeah. how they... You just answered they... your own question. No, no, no. No, you answered it earlier. But the, the, it's, they're microscopic. So they've got them sitting on like a petri dish. Yeah. They're transparent, then... the worms. So you can actually see their complete digestive system from mouth to butt. And they glow green, glow red, their insides. Was this wow. just an elaborate experiment to create Christmas lights under the microscope? I think so. <laughs> One worm at a time. Look, Gary, I've done it. Happy Christmas. <laughs> now Sophie's going to tell us how DNA has been used to store files. Oh, yeah? I am. Cool. Take it away. <laughs> Uh, In a paper published in Science last week, scientists from Columbia and the New York Genome Center proved that we can use DNA as a reliable data storage device. Whoa. So we have a problem, right? Whoa, 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 (laughs) whoa. Like a a USB. Back the truck up. All right, all right. So in the last two years alone, we've created more data in all of space and time than anything that came before. Wow. Last two years. And... I think it's every two years we mm-hmm. double the amount of data that we produce, and that's expected to go on for the next 10 years. What just... happens after 10 years? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think that's the end of reality as we know it. Um, so is this, is this just all the movies that I've downloaded, air quotes <laughs> downloaded, on uh, that are sitting on my hard drive at home? Or? Uh, I guess every bit of research, um, oh, every it's bit serious of software. Work too. Oh, no. okay. It's basically Silicon Valley to blame. They're creating... Right. Our so, problems. you're talking about the all that data, that information, the ones and zeros inside the computer, storing it on DNA. Yeah. So, so we're, we're starting to get to implanting chips in humans, aren't we? <laughs> well, we're to getting the contrary. We're, we're doing it, aren't we? Uh, sort of bringing DNA outside the body. We learned from this piece of research that one single gram of DNA is capable of storing 215 million gigabytes, which oh my is God. 215 petabytes. Petabytes. Petabytes? What's that? It's a a thousand terabytes. No, no, no. It's a million gig. (laughs) (laughs) Little pre-prepared joke there. Um, So basically, if we wanted to store all of data ever recorded by humans, it would only take about a couple of pickup trucks worth of DNA. Um, DNA has a lot of advantages that you should know about. It's ultra compact, i.e. it's inside of our bodies. Folds yeah. up into cells. It's basically the information stored in our bodies that tells us all about our bodies. Yeah, so no, it's, reliable. Yeah. it's reliable. But how it's are we existed. getting something that's in the computer box in ones and zero form? We're getting there. I'm, oh, I'm right, doing sorry. the build-up. Sorry. That's a narrative, Adrian. Sorry. <laughs> Continue. Um, DNA doesn't degrade over time like cassette tapes or CDs, DVDs. It can last hundreds of thousands of years if kept in a cool, dry place. But the downside is that it's a really time-consuming process. Uh, it takes at least two weeks, um, and it can't be scaled yet. So what are the researchers' code? So they stored about six files into 72,000 DNA strands. Each of those strands were about 200 bases long. Um, so what they did was they zipped up a total master file of random stuff. Um, it contained a full computer operating system, an 1895 French film, and I think an Amazon gift card. DNA has four nucleotides. Right. Um, a, G, C, T. What they did was they used those um, to create a language with the binary. So right. the file translated to binary. Each of the binary translated to one of those letters. Um, the nucleotide letters. 
The nucleotides, yeah. So they used an algorithm to randomly map the zeros and ones from binary to the four nucleotide bases. Right. Then at the end of that, they added a barcode to help reassemble the files later, and they basically ended up with a big text file that they sent off to San Francisco. Two weeks later, they received a package in the mail. It was a vial which contained just a speck of DNA molecules. And they recovered those, that DNA by sequencing the molecules back into the binary form. Um, and they used a software to translate the genetic code back into binary. I've got a question, perhaps a sticky one. Once they've got all of those files transferred into the ATCG nucleotides, how then do they Frankenstein-style patchwork the DNA to actually string that together? Hmm? Do they, did, so they've got the, the files, the mm-hmm. binary and put it into four letters, mm-hmm. then they've actually got them into 72,000 strands of molecules. How did they string them together in those strands? Did they, like... I'm, I'm not sure how they split it. They had a master file of, like, the, the gift card, the film, the computing software. They split that master file into short strings of binary, into Mac zeros and ones. <laughs> I don't know, Linux? <laughs> um, so you're saying how did that become... DNA when how, it came how, back. How do they encode it onto the DNA as, as consistent strands? Yeah, I don't. That's what this company I, in San I still Francisco can't work does. It out. I still can't work it out. I'm still back at the stage where they've got someone's arm, they've cut a slit in the arm, and they're stuck a USB <laughs> no one said in there. That. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking in my peanut little head. Um, so yeah, uh, they recovered the information. They sequenced the molecules back into the binary form using special software, and they found that the recovered files were error feet. Error, error free. Just like that sentence. <laughs> error free. Error free. They were error free. We're about to speak with Michelle Tratwine, an entomologist at the California Academy of Science, currently collaborating with the CSIRO on a new project, Arthropods of Our Homes. Uh, Michelle, we were talking to Brian at CSIRO, Brian Lassard, about a project that you're working on at the moment, uh, looking at arthropods inside Australian homes. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about it? Sure, yeah. So uh, we basically are interested just in, in the diversity of bugs that are living in human houses. And the study started because we realized that we know a lot about, you know, a handful of important pest species, but we don't know a lot just about the general diversity of, of what's living in human houses. And to some degree, human houses are, are kind of a, a new uh you know, a new habitat in terms of evolutionary time because humans have only been building houses for about 20,000 years. And so to us, we're thinking about it as kind of an unexplored ecosystem. Um, and so we did a pretty extensive study in, in North Carolina, and now we uh, are doing a global study just to see how um, arthropod communities and houses vary all around the world and in different housing types and different geographical areas. So this is our Australia stop. Wow, it sounds awesome. Um, is there something so far that you found that's unique about species assemblages inside the house as opposed to uh, arthropods in the wild? Uh, what I mean, what's what's so special about inside the house? Yeah, so we're we're actually trying to still narrow that down. Um, I mean, what we've found some of the I guess the the result that's the most exciting to me. Uh, is that basically we just find a ton of diversity in houses. And so I think even as entomologists, we were pretty surprised uh, that we find on average about 100 species, uh, different types of species in houses. Wowzers. Um And in terms of communities uh, and how they compare to the outside, it seems like um, the, the insects that, that you find in your house are actually 
probably largely a mix of things that just come in from the outside. But then there's also kind of this core community of, of um, arthropods that probably really do live out most of their life cycle in houses. They really thrive in houses and have probably recently adapted um, to, to living in human houses, preferentially. Wow, it's sort of like housemates you didn't know exist. They don't pay rent. They just sort of chill out, <laughs> pop up occasionally. Yep. Yeah, and only a few of them are a real pain, right? Most of them are, are pretty, um, in fact, the vast majority are, are just good, good roommates. <laughs> Have you seen any exciting uh, Australian arthropods so far? Have you encountered any huntsmen? <laughs> we did, we did. We just found one yesterday, actually. That was our first. Um, we also added a new insect order to our uh, to our collecting because we found a, a big walking stick uh, inside a house. Um, yeah, like, and, and yeah, maybe you call it something different in, in Australia. I don't know, like a long, skinny insect that looks like a stick. Anyways, oh, cool. uh, we hadn't found stick one of them insect, in, yeah. in the U.S. inside houses. Oh, stick wow. insect, yeah. That's uh, fantastic. Uh, but I actually, I've been most pleased by the fact that we find we're finding a lot of the same groups also, which kind of indicates that human houses really are these pretty unique. Um, pretty unique ecosystems in the sense that, and they're very similar all around the world, like humans, you know, kind of recreate with a lot of the same resources, the same kind of habitat from an arthropod's perspective, you know, all over the world. How weird a, uh, a universal ecosystem, universal habitat. Has there been any uh, coevolution with arthropods in houses and humans? Well, uh, you know, certainly there has. Um, I mean, if you think about so a, a handful of the species that we know about, um, like, for example, you know, Drosophila species that, that um, you know, kind of are the tiny flies that are all over your bananas or house flies or, um, you know, the German cockroach or a handful of other species are, you know, we know that they're globally distributed basically because they love li living with humans, right? So in, in the case <laughs> of those two flies, you know, they also originate in Africa the same way that humans do. Um, but they've spread around the world uh, uh, as we have spread around the world, and they really just prefer to, to live in our houses than anywhere else. And so, um, you know, those are some examples that we know about, but my guess is that there's a lot of examples of other kind of small, nondescript arthropods that we don't pay a lot of attention to that have done followed that same pattern, but we just really haven't um, examined it yet. I guess that's the point of this uh, project. Is there any connection between <laughs> uh, personal hygiene and arthropods in homes that you found so Well, far? you know, we haven't. Yeah, we have um, looked at that a little bit. So our first study, we uh, had people fill out pretty extensive surveys, and um, and it was it was hard to quantify. You know, and as scientists, we always like to deal with numbers, but it was a little bit hard to quantify um, <laughs> a house cleanliness and clutter and that kind of thing. But we made our estimations, and we found there really didn't seem to be a difference. Um, and even anecdotally, on our on our trip to Canberra, we looked in a few houses, and one that was just immaculately clean. Um, when we actually got down on our hands and knees and looked at tiny stuff, gosh, we found a ton of diversity. So, um, so you know, I would I would say you know that's not as clear as you might guess. Wow, how interesting! Are there any uh, any benefits in living among arthropods? <laughs> so I. Uh, I, w I think it's probably a, a stretch for me to try to convince people that it's really good for them to have a ton of bugs in their house. But at the same time, I, uh, I think, you know, there might be a couple benefits. Um, and these are just kind of hypotheses or things we, we talk about, um, you know, amongst uh, ourselves in the project. But, but like, for example, um, in the ecosystem, if there's a, in your house ecosystem, if there's a lot of diversity and really there's a little bit more of a functional ecosystem and food web, for example, with, with predators and scavengers that maybe 
that kind of diversity really inhibits uh, a single spe pest species kind of taking over. So maybe, you know, that diverse community prevents infestations. Um, again, I don't know if that's true, but, uh, but it's certainly worth considering. Um, yeah, and then I think it, just in general, you know, like over the past decade, we've learned so much more about how important our own gut microbiome is and how important our skin microbiome is to our own health and, and the role that bacteria plays in our lives. And I think that um, arthropods are certainly a facilitator of that type of bacterial diversity in our life and that connection to the outside world, which we're learning uh, is more and more important than we perhaps ever imagined before. We were just uh, speaking about the microbes inside us and how it's like a a continuous ecosystem inside and outside the human body. We're all interlocked with animals. It's great. Protectors of yeah, the gut. Yeah, it's pretty bizarre. All about that diversity. Uh, when you went into people's homes, did you did your participants feel better or worse learning what arthropods they live with? <laughs> or is it a case of uh, ignorance is bliss? Well, I have to say, you know, uh, we don't force ourselves into people's houses, so these are volunteers. But I think, truthfully, it's probably all in good fun, um, and they're interested in, uh, uh, they all, you know, want to know exactly what we found. So um, so I'd say it's a little bit of a mix. Did you, uh, personally, Bri, obviously, is the fly guy. Did you have a favorite group of arthropods, an order of insects, or a... I did yeah, so I'm actually, I'm also a fly worker. Um, you know, Brian and I have, have uh, both kind of been trained by this in the same... Uh, kind of cohort of colleagues, and so we're both part of the fly community. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on Interinots. It was great to speak to you, and we look forward to yeah. uh, seeing what comes out of arthropods of our homes. And I'll yeah, great. try you. and stay more calm next time I stumble across something in my house. <laughs> Jesse, you were talking about your huntsman dilemma um, when you were personally evacuating your huntsman spiders that led to an outbreak of cockroaches? Yeah, we got a treaty now. So I had five huntsmen in less than a week and I transplanted them all to the trees in my local park. And then once uh, I... just, to, just to stop you there, you personally transported them to the park? Yeah, after a series of attempts with various Tupperware containers, paper and cardboard. <laughs> right. Took Above them to the, and beyond. Took them to the park and uh, then the week after that saw an explosion of cockroaches and then I realized the ecosystem was out of balance. I needed the apex predators back in, needed to ship in some carnivores. So um, crossed my fingers and, and did a shout out to, to a huntsman. And uh, one came along and mm. two have come along. Would you put an ad up on Gumtrace? <laughs> Literally a Gumtree. They do live on Gumtrace. Um, so the yeah, huntsman wanted, two, apply within. Yeah, two, two showed up. Uh, in the next few days, two different species, like a brown one and a silver one, mm -hmm. and and the cockroach problem has gone. I even caught a, a photo of a huntsman eating a cockroach, and um, yeah, so they actually they do do that. So I think Michelle's speculation was spot on. And do you feel better or worse knowing that there's two there's diversity inside your home? I'm getting good at weaving stories for myself uh, about my relationship with the spiders. They they like living there. They're doing a good job. I think I prefer them now. Hey. What's a anthropophysicist? What is it that, that the fruit Mich fly? Michelle's entomologist? No, no. What's what is it that Michelle's studying? Arthropods. Arthropods. What's an arthropod? Arthro. That's a really dumb question. Arthro means joint, and pod means leg, so it means those or foot, those with uh, jointed legs. So I'm an arthropod. No, they've got distinct. <laughs> yes, good point. Uh, distinct pieces of exoskeleton and hinged ones. Right. So their bones are on the outside and they've got no internal structural support. So for the people at home that are a bit like me, hopefully they're a bit smarter than I am, but that might not know exactly what you mean, what are some of the animals that fall into that? We spoke about fruit flies there. 
So, what are some of the other animals and creatures that... Um, I think the statistic is 90% of animal species are arthropods. So uh-huh. insects, you know, flies, grasshoppers, arachnids, spiders, scorpions, ticks, millipedes, centipedes, horseshoe crabs, lobsters. There are a lot of arthropods. Oh, I've got a real lobster problem at home. <laughs> oh, just this one corner of the kitchen. Just uh, so many lobsters. And I've got the third piece of science news. Research from the Queensland Brain Institute has identified the genetic component behind a common developmental brain disorder. The condition is called mirror movement disorder, in which intended movements on one half of the body are involuntarily mirrored on the other half. It's mostly on the upper half of the body, arms, hands and fingers, but can also affect the legs, making walking difficult. So if you intend to raise your left hand, Mm -hmm. your right hand involuntarily uh, copies the action. Shoots up as well. Shoots up as well. Um, So uh, sufferers of the condition have difficulty doing asymmetric activities on their upper half, typing on a keyboard, playing piano, um, writing. Guitar? Guitar, indeed. It's congenital, so the condition manifests in infants and children at birth, genetic disorder, and it persists through life. Those sufferers do learn how to combat it by uh, consciously overwriting these involuntarily muscular movements. So how's it working? Their their brain's saying right arm raise. Consciously, and then the other one uh, goes up. Yeah. So it wouldn't be affected by actually looking in a mirror or seeing what you were doing. It's more the actual brain control to do that movement. So uh, you'll probably know that the brain is roughly split into two hemispheres, or Mm -hmm. it is split into two hemispheres, but it's not split per se in that there is a nerve cord that runs through the middle connecting them. It's Mm -hmm. called the the corpus callosum. It's this tough tough band of neurons, and it constantly transmits. It's like a, uh, a tin can phone transmitting information of what the left hemisphere is doing to the right hemisphere, Mm -hmm. and vice versa. So uh, in patients where the corpus callosum gets damaged, each hemisphere has trouble communicating what what it's doing to the other. And Mm. and essentially, you are a a symmetrical, bilaterally symmetrical creature, and both halves of your body are... uh, I know I am, but what are you? (laughs) Both halves of your body are controlled by both hemispheres of your brain, Mm -hmm. and if they're not communicating properly, things are lost in translation, and they don't don't coordinate properly. So what this study did, this Australian researchers, uh, also part of an international team, they uh, looked at this uh, disorder, mirror movement disorder, and found out the cause is in mutations in a gene called DCC. And when this gene, DCC, mutates, it stops the corpus callosum, the neurons that connect both hemispheres, from forming properly. So so that condition uh, is called abiogenesis of the corpus callosum, ACC. So... <clears throat> Any mutations in this gene cause that connection to not form properly, thus both hemispheres can't coordinate, mm-hmm. thus you get this movement disorder. It yep. sounds like a pretty tough condition. Do we know how many people suffer from it? I don't, but it, it did say it's relatively common. So, yeah, again, the disease called agenesis of the corpus callosum results in a lack of movement coordination between both hemispheres. Yet, uh, when researchers looked at uh, healthy brains or brains with this disorder, both hemispheres are completely healthy. They look exactly the same. The mm-hmm. only difference is the corpus callosum. So uh, there are no other um, uh, downsides to having having this sort of aside from the there can be speech. Okay, right. so everything else sort of... Oh, there can be speech. Oh, speech, right. How does that manifest, do we know? Um, perhaps the motor coordination of the mouth apparatus. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm speculating. Mm-hmm. But um, So the researchers also found that where this mutation occurs within the gene affects how seriously the disorder manifests and if it could be worse 
Um, yes, that's what they found, the, the genetic basis behind quite a common uh, neural disorder. Cool. There Hopefully it means they can tackle it in the near future. Yeah, grab it with both hands. The past two weeks, a lot of research has gone on inside the CSIRO, and Sophie's going to tell us about some of that. Uh, Edward Evans, a 61-year-old patient in the UK, was the recipient of a CSIRO 3D-printed sternum. I saw this. That's oh, incredible. Yeah, there was uh, there was some sternum news about a couple of years ago, but what makes this really cool is that it's part titanium and also polymer, so bone cartilage and soft tissue, which is a world first. Yeah. Yeah, so the patient um, had to have his sternum removed because it was infected and it's in a really difficult spot to have surgery on. Mm-hmm. Um, so 3D printing was the logical answer. Um, the combination of bone, cartilage and tissue is, um, yeah, as I said, a world first. It forms a polymer called Porestar. Plastic polymer. Which is exciting, not only because of its ambiguous name, but the fact that its uh, pore star is a lightweight and porous polyethylene. Um, so that's the most common type of plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so Syro partnered, CSIRO partnered with Anatomics, a company in Melbourne, um, which we've also collaborated, collaborated with before on 3D printing other body parts like ribs and the sternum. Um, the sternum was, in this case, modelled off CT scans of the patient. And, yeah. So he basically got his own sternum back just in plastic form. Upgraded. In so porn star form. No, the sternum was made from metal. So CSIRO uses titanium powder and 3D prints metal ink, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And the ribs and the cartilage and the tissue that, that connects the ribs and the sternum to the rest of the biological tissue, that's what the polymer or the plastic was, was done. Mm, so it was coated in the polymer afterwards, I believe. Okay. Um, What's so special about the the pore star polymer? Well, it's uh, it's lightweight. It's porous. And it won't um, ping when he goes through the airport security. That's a plus. I wonder if titanium does do that. Um, so the titanium sternum was printed down in Melbourne. The pore star was added as the final edition. And it was bundled up and shipped to the UK, uh, where the sternum was inserted into the patient, and he's since made a full recovery. There you go. Amazing. Yeah. So, um, for listeners who don't know, the sternum is the piece of bone that is the, the central connection point of the ribs that goes yeah. around to connect them with the spinal cord. So, it's a, quite a central piece of yeah. structure in and the stru- top Yeah, structurally, the it's, it's hugely important. Mm. Yeah, it's the, the front backbone of the rib cage. Wow, that was a confusing way of putting it. The front bone. Um, yeah, so they used a camera to monitor his ribs breathing. Uh, sorry, his ribs moving in and out after the surgery, and they were synchronizing with his breathing, which was it meant it was successful. Oh, excellent! Wow, I guess that's where the cartilage and tissue comes in. Mm, yeah, I'm. I'm not sure what kind of tissue it was. I was just about to specify. That. Yeah. Well, it's exciting to see how far 3D printing has come in such a short way, and hopefully uh, this partnership leads to more exciting, groundbreaking collaborations. That's the end of another episode of Interronauts. Thank you very much for listening. It's great to have you here. If you'd uh, like to ask me more? (laughs) Yeah, I'm sad that was quick. Yeah, me too. 
It goes fast, isn't it? It does. Only another fortnight. Another fortnight. What can listeners do in the meantime? You can ask us a question about the show or something uh, you'd like to hear us talk about next time. Send us a tweet. Seamless, guys. Seamless. Send us a tweet at CSIRO News on Twitter. You can also send us a message or a comment on Facebook. We've got a CSIRO Facebook page. Just search that. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to head to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. We're hungry for your feedback. We really need it. We're desperate. Are we? Mm, I'm not. Yeah. No, I guess me neither. I guess. It reflects nice. I mean, it's a nice thing to hear someone enjoy it. Yeah. Mm. yeah it'd be good to, uh, yeah, learn what you what you think about the show. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. And we'll have you speak- spoken to any baristas this week about what their, their favorite podcasts are? Or? <laughs> no. Have, have you been back to your coffee joint? <laughs> I have. That's what we should have is fortnightly updates on, on the coffee, <laughs> on the barista. I have. Does I did, he still think you're not funny? I didn't mention that he was featured. Okay. I'll keep you on the download. We added his name out. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening to the show, and we'll... You know what you should do is try and make him laugh, and prove him wrong. And no, then... he does laugh, but just uh, things that I don't mean him to. All oh, right. <laughs> like my face. <laughs> Why can I just get a, a skinny flat white? <laughs> thank you very much for listening to the show, and we'll see you again in a fortnight. See, see ya. ya.